Daimler-Podcast. Der Daimler-Podcast. Future of the planet. Future of software. Future of culture. When the CEOs of two of the biggest German companies meet up and chat for almost an hour, you can be sure that they will speak about all the topics the world of business is currently dealing with. In this special episode of Headlights, Deutsche Telekom CEO Tim Höttges and Daimler CEO Ola Kelenius discuss how we can keep our personal freedom without affecting our planet. Ola Kelenius explains how Daimler wants to catch up with Tesla on the software side of their cars. And both of them discuss which new skills we need to transform the culture of traditional companies so that they are ready for a world with open software and worldwide communities. Listen in. So, Ola, good morning. Good morning. Um, you had a short night. I just learned that we put you out of the bed very early and I got in bed very late. So therefore, you know, I think... Uh, We managed somewhere in between. It's great having you here. It's great to be here and uh, meet with your team. Ola, taking an easy one um, uh, this morning. I think, you know, we saw the Avatar and we saw Vegas. Honestly, I think, you know, um, uh, for certain, you know, rocked the show. Everybody was talking about this Avatar. Uh, what is that about? So, what is this? Is this just uh, an advertising thing or is this something where you think it's real? Is this, is this an idea? What, what, can I buy it or, you know, can... Well, I guess the uh, Avatar movie plays in the year, is it 2149? So at some point, we will be able to sell you something along these lines. But jokes aside, the CES for quite some time now has almost mutated in from an electronic show to an electronics and car show. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of car companies come there to display new technologies and of course, uh, a lot of technology companies use the car as the ultimate mobile device to display technologies. We teamed up with the Avatar guys for two reasons. Um, Jim Cameron, John Landau and their team, they've always been about innovation of film industry. Created a lot of new, let's call it technical innovation, back to the Terminator movies, even how they did Titanic, and then uh, using um, a new way of filming for the Avatar movies. So innovators in the film industry meet innovators in the car industry. So kind of the same DNA there. But an underlying message in their movies and what we brought to the show with this car is about sustainability. Yeah. How do you create the balance between man, machine, nature, and this car, even if it is a little bit science fiction and it looks spectacular, some of the technologies that we presented in, these, in this car are uh, research stage and some of them are actually in development stage. The battery, for instance, is based on an organic chemistry that is biodegradable. Okay. That oh. is in our lab as we speak. Uh, will it make to serious development? I don't know, but if it would, you would solve the whole recycling problem of battery cells. It's just one example. Well, um, do you think that anyhow this creativity from, from book writers, from um, futurists, you know, even from movie makers, is something which is coming true at one point in time? You see Orwell, and whenever you talk about China, people talk about Orwell these days, you know. Um, so um, if you see, you know, all the technologies we have seen when we were kids, you know, with Star Wars and other things, a lot of things are already happening in reality these days. It's funny that you say that. I'm a little bit of a film buff. And I was thinking about that when I, when I watched the old Blade Runner movie yeah. again recently. <laughs> so what happens in the old Blade Runner movie? I don't know, what is it, 30 years more, 35 years old? Harrison Ford, he uses a phone booth 
to call people in the yeah, future. Yeah, right. 42. I, I guess you guys and a few others took care of that that didn't come true. But he also rides in a flying car. Yeah. So you did something that was spectacular, and we're still having a car that's on the road. Yeah. So maybe we haven't moved fast enough, <laughs> uh, which means the science fiction movies uh, uh, don't always get it right. Uh, <clears throat> but you have to sometimes break three and yeah. think the unthinkable. And we're in a transformation uh, stage of the auto industry, so I think if we, if we, if we meet again 10 years from now, a lot of things will be very different on our end of the business. It's interesting that we are movies now, because immediately one movie comes into my mind, which drives me to my first topic I'd like to discuss with you, uh, sustainability, Mad Max. And um, there were these films, by the way, I hated them. I, I, I think I've never seen a whole one, but <laughs> this dystopic approach about the future and, you know, the last human beings trying to fight, you know, um, and survive. Um, if you read Stephen Hawkins about, let's say, there is, you know, another 50 years, you know, before this, this planet is over. If you, if you even, you know, read Yuval Hari, who, who is, whose expectation is that at the end of the day, this planet is not going to survive because there might be too many humans um, going to kill it. Um, how, how, how optimistic are you? And what does that say you as a leader? What is your answer on, uh, uh, in this regard? Well, the planet is always going to survive. The question is, what's our role on the planet going to be? <laughs> and I think that's, uh, that's the conundrum. That's what we have to look at. Uh, I understand and also appreciate the heightened sense of urgency. Uh, and I have nothing against a heightened sense of urgency. But at the same time, who's actually going to solve the problem? Please. It's probably the people in this room, the people that work for us. It's the engineers and other people as well that are actually going to solve the problem. I don't think that we can just roll back clock and say, let's just go back into the cave and hope that everything's going to be okay. It's not going to work. Mm -hmm. So we've got to work ourselves forward. Uh, and with our strategy that we call Ambition 2039, we have put an ambition stake in the ground to say, uh, our forefathers invented the car. They gave us personal freedom. This personal freedom, self-determined individual mobility, has changed the world over the last 130, 40 years. How can we keep that personal freedom without having a negative impact on the planet? And the only way to do that is to try to figure out to reinvent that invention into something that is wholly sustainable. That is a monumental task, but it's a task that happens in R&D and then in production and so on. So we have to take an optimistic view of saying, we're going to fix this problem now. We're not going to put our hand, head in the sand. Uh, let's go, go after it. And if not us, who then? That's true. Can you give me a little bit more flavor about the, what is how you see mobility evolving in this time? What is that say, what might be the answers of the, of the engineers? What are the answers from car makers like you? So what are the answers? Uh, we have one underlying assumption that is not politically shared with everybody, but I think it's a realistic underlying assumption. Our underlying assumption is that people are not going to want to move less. We believe that people are going to want to move more. Yeah. And especially countries that are growing in wealth, yeah. uh, it is a historic fact that it increases the moving pattern. That's people. If we look at the goods, there is a direct correlation between economic growth and movement of goods. Uh, full stop. 
and, and, and the economy that we're going into with uh, more and more uh, online shopping and so on, actually, the movement is increasing, it's not decreasing. Yeah. It would probably be environmentally more friendly to go to the market and do your shopping and not order everything from Amazon or whatever. But if you have that as an underlying assumption, um, the road is not to reduce movement. You have to make movement CO2 free and you have to make it resource neutral. Those are the two areas. CO2 free, holistically speaking, is make the machine emission free. Three candidates at the moment, electric cars fuel cell, or even, uh, if it's economically worth, synthetic fuels based upon renewable energies. Mm -hmm. There I say, you know, may the best technology win, or a new one that comes. Economics and engineering will decide that. Solve that, but also solve everything around it. Supply chain, got to go CO2 neutral. Your own production has to go CO2 neutral. We have made a commitment to turn our plants CO2 neutral at the latest by 2022. And then, and this is the second other big chunk of the whole equation, is uh, the energy production has to go CO2 neutral. Because it wouldn't make sense, even if we would make every single car here now um, battery electric or even fuel cell, uh, unless the electricity or the hydrogen comes from a CO2-free source, it doesn't solve the problem. So that, that's what we're working on now. That's the content of it, with the biggest focus for us on the product, but thinking holistically about the whole chain. So, um, talking about the fuel cell, by, by the way, I'm riding one of your cars. I think, you know, you have only eight, one of them, you know, in, in Germany at that point in time, and we have one here in the offices. Uh, I love it, by the way. Um, the only question is, is this a technology which is evolving? Because you see now more um, um, e-mobility based on electricity, but less on the, on the cells. You don't have the, um, um, the refuel um, um, stations and the like. So, is it really an alternative? Uh, we, have work, we have been working on the fuel cell longer than your company has existed. So it feels a little bit like a next year type of promise. Uh, what's our current view? As a technology solution in its own right, it works wonderfully well. And yes, we created a GLC fuel cell yeah. that we launched in small, small volumes about a year ago, year, year and a half ago to demonstrate, yes, you can do a real Mercedes as a fuel cell car. So why are we not scaling that now? We're not scaling that now because the battery electric car, at this stage in development, is the more economical solution. Yeah. The cost structures are very high on both, but if we want to create affordable mobility, even for a premium luxury brand like Mercedes, you have to pinch every penny and make sure that you, you keep your cost position. The battery electric has a cost advantage and a scale advantage at this stage vis-a-vis -vis the fuel cell. And also in terms of infrastructure, even though we need to do enormous work on infrastructure for battery electric, it's still kind of there. So the hurdle for somebody to jump into a battery electric car is not as big as the hurdle to jump to a fuel cell car. So we believe for the next five to 10 years, the main road is battery electric. If you jump to our commercial vehicle side, where you have some applications where you need a lot of energy, maybe a heavy-duty truck, long haul, or a bus that needs to transport people in the winter, heat the cabin, and all sorts of things, we think the fuel cell are going to come in on the commercial vehicle side first. So we have almost switched the chronology here, and the next fuel cell vehicles from Daimler will be commercial vehicles, and then further down the road, we'll see which technology wins the race. 
Okay, makes sense. Now, um, sometimes I look into the mirror, and then I say, and by the way, my wife, she's, she, she's becoming an eco ecologist, you know, and always challenging me, I say, by the way, why are we riding these big cars, and is this, is this still temporary? Is that, shouldn't we get a, a, an electric car? Shouldn't we ride a car which is smaller? Is the big Mercedes, is this time over? Is this, this huge luxury cars? Is this end of lifestyle that we go now into more sustainable, uh, smaller cars for another way of, of mobility? If we talk about product diversity as such, uh, we try to stay away a little bit from the ideological discussion. If our discussion would be, let's only ride in smarts, uh, which we have in our portfolio as well, you could, you could continue that discussion and say, why don't we all live in a one-room apartment? Would work with my family if we pull together and only wear one suit and so on and so forth. So we have stepped away from that and said, we're a luxury company. Our license to operate must be that that S-Class of the future yeah. is sustainable. It needs to be recyclable. It needs to be fully recyclable and one day actually use primarily secondary materials to build it. At the moment, I think we're at about 30% or so uh, uh, recycl re secondary materials. Recyclability is already 95% or above. Mm. Then we got to turn it CO2-free. For the S-Class itself, it will have a plug-in hybrid uh, with a range that I promise you from Monday through Friday will cover more than 90% of your use. But if you want to drive from Bonn to, mm. I don't know, Stuttgart. Munich, Stuttgart, uh, maybe uh, yeah. go on vacation to Italy or something, right. you have the perfect combination. And of course, dovetailing the new S-Class is the EQS, as we call it, that we showed as a vision car in Frankfurt. So there will be a fully electric brother-sister car of that car about half a year later. So we're in a transitionary period here where the markets around the world would require kind of all of the above, but the end goal for us is clear, emission-free. But the SOV and this kind of cars was driving profitability of car manufacturers over the last years and still do. Um, but there is a big criticism about this SUV stuff. You know, how do you how do you react on this one? How, yeah. Is this is this hysteria of people, or is it is it you know? But these are the customers who are complaining. Some of them, at least, you know. In the German media, and particularly the German media, and in some interest groups, this is a discussion. Uh, the interesting thing is at the point of sale. We're actually, uh, that's the true democracy of, of market economy, is the customer choosing what they want to do. Uh, at the point of sale, we have seen an uninterrupted trend for more than 20, I, I would say 25 years now, since we launched the original M-Class, of this segment just going up and up and up and up. Why do people buy SUVs in all classes, from big ones? I mean, you mm. could get an S-Class, but you yeah. could also get the GLS yeah. if you want the SUV. You could get an A-Class, but you can get a GLA if you want an SUV. What do people love about it? It's the seating position. You have a feeling that you have a better command over Correct. traffic. It is the versatility. If you're a person with, maybe you have hobbies, maybe you go biking, whatever, you, you have a, 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 a space, a utility space mm -hmm. uh, that can be used. And then of course it's an image thing. Uh, it's considered cool and especially in a luxury segment, you buy things that you think are trend. So 
the SUV debate for us, in a way, is a little bit of a Zudo debate. Uh, all the customers around the world, and it's, there's no difference. North America, Europe, China, everybody wants it. What's our goal? Turn the fuel consumption of those cars down to the same level that you had on the passenger cars. Or, if in case of electric, obviously, zero emission, but also work with aerodynamics. And everything you have, weight, the friction of the tires, everything to, to reduce the energy usage of these vehicles. And then you get away from the shape debate. Mm. Let's look at what the problem is that we're going to solve. The problem is burning fossil fuels and creating CO2. That's what we got to solve. And not the design, huh? And not the design yeah. of, of the vehicle per se. And of course, as a Mercedes person, if we would say uh, there would not, you should never buy a big car, our business model doesn't work particularly well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, um, yesterday, you know, um, we had a discussion here in this room about what matters. And uh, one of the topics was, whatever we do, we cannot do enough of one thing. Digitizing our services, digitizing our processes, digitizing the customer integration, understanding the digitizing the digital use cases um, um, which we are applying. Now, mm. you know, I was riding the Tesla, and honestly, the app, the software of this car is outstanding. It's, the, it's a revolution compared to my, my Mercedes. If I'm looking for a golf course, and I'm safe to say in the navigation kit, golf course wherever, you know, I have three crashes or five minutes, you know, at the waiting booth before I have the address in it. If I use the Tesla design and only do GO, it knows already what Tim wants to do. So, look, this is one example. And the software of this issue, uh, of this car, the updates of this car, the way how they, the innovation was coming from software is so much better than what I have experienced from this super German cars that I'm very worried, how are you catching up? And my second question is even going, how do you develop the platform, the software platform, which is scaling for your company, which is a big one, but if I look to the big platforms which are existing in our industry, only one survives, or maybe two. Are you part of that? So how is this software um, development with um, Daimler uh, evolving? You're addressing one of the key strategic moves of the future for any car company and certainly for, uh, for Daimler and Mercedes. Even though I think we were actually the first ones to offer a navigation system in the S-Class back in the 90s, rudimentary system, but it, it kind of worked. Uh, for the longest time, we approached the whole topic of telematics in the car, as we used to call it. I would now more, more call it connected car because it's the ultimate mobile device, not, not the mobile phone, the, the ultimate mobile device is a car. Uh, it was by engineers for engineers. Mm. Yeah? So if you had a PhD in, uh, <laughs> I don't know, Mercedes engineering, you would probably understand it. But it never passed the test that we sometimes use as a joke. Either a five-year-old kid or a board member of Daimler should be able to learn to operate it without, <laughs> with, without, without Yeah, having too many hours of explanation by somebody. <laughs> so we made a decision, this is now four years ago, to literally take that everything that we had done over 20 years to flush it down the toilet completely and start from scratch. And the first step of this new world uh, of connected car, which needs to be a car that is over the air downloadable, uh, the first step of that was the new A-Class 
in 2018 with what we call MBUX. Mm -hmm. And the next generation, that's why it's worth the wait, will come in the S-Class where we're going a step further, where the whole electric electronic architecture, the digital architecture of the vehicle will be downloadable. A player like Tesla started from scratch. Yeah. They jumped to the new thing yeah. uh, from the word go uh, and have done a, a reasonable job at that. Of course, our goal is uh, not only to beat that, but to do it in a Mercedes way where aesthetically everything is just perfect, the logic, everything. But you have to think, think big here. And the paradigm shift, your second question, now how do you do yeah. it? And this is the journey that we're on. This is a long journey because we have to kind of migrate from, from a legacy world that has been there forever and a day. You have to detach hardware and software. You have to develop an operating system eventually for the whole car. Every single function in the car, from the drivetrain yeah. to kind of the connected infotainment world. And then you have to do applications on top of this. Some of those applications you do yourself because it's your car maker domain. And some of them you integrate from other people. And we have also made a decision to go uh, free open source software on this. Okay. And that's the question about which operating systems in the end will survive. Uh, things, some things always remain proprietary, mm -hmm. of course. Uh, uh, some of the core IP. But if we don't engage with the wider community, uh, we don't think that's going to be a winning strategy. Uh, and who knows? Maybe there will be more cooperation and alliances. I think we're in the early days of how this is going to shake down. But for us, in the next five to ten years, this is one of the strategic moves. Move away from the old decentralized, buying an ECU and a piece of software and tie it together, to creating a, your own full operating system detached from the hardware with applications on top of it. I think that's, um, there are a lot of analogies to our industries which we are, which we are seeing. And uh, now, understanding the car industry, you had this kind of extended workbench. You had this logic of OEMs being your major supplier. And you reduced your core capabilities to a minimum. And everything was delivered from the boss, the contis of this world, and online into the factories and uh, being, you know, um, is this the future model? Or is this software platform and all the data which is generated in the car not something which you have to develop as a car manufacturer your own? Is it not the propriety know-how which you, which you have to control in the future? And, what is your answer on this? We have to own all the data and the intelligence of our, of, of a lot of the supply which we which we are buying today. Uh, the business model you're describing is, if I if I think back, how did it all start? The the first mass producer was Henry Ford. He did everything himself. Yeah. It was almost like a hundred percent vertical integration. And over the decades, we have become the master integrators. What is a car company? We are masters at integrating technology and creating a package and put it in a beautiful wrapping. Correct. Now we're going to start walking in the direction towards Henry Ford again, but not in every domain, but in the software domain we will. We're going to have to insource software. And as a matter of fact, at Mercedes, this process started about three years ago. And we're building up uh, digital hubs and starting to bring gradually software in us. I spent half a day yesterday with our software team in Berlin. We put 
one of the main activities in Berlin because it was one of the best places in Germany, maybe the best place in Germany, yeah. to attract the talent that we're looking for. When you, when you go out to that and you have uh, uh, spent half a day with these young people, you are absolutely on fire. And you're starting to think, yeah, we can do this. You don't have to be in Silicon Valley or in Shenzhen. Of course, we have people there and in Bangalore and everywhere. But we can do this. And not only we can do this, we must do this. Mm -hmm. So yes, there is now vertical integration going in the other direction. And OEMs are starting to make moves to bring things in-house. Who is the competition in the future? Is that Microsoft? Is that, uh, is that Google? The competition in the future is perhaps uh, an asymmetric competition. The usual suspects that we have known forever, new players, you mentioned one, yeah. that are coming into our industry, and some of the tech companies, depending on which business models they choose in the car, can be frenemies. They can be strong uh, allies uh, at the same time as there are harsh competitors. Some of the tech companies have decided to be friends only. Those tend to win a lot of business with the OEMs at the moment, if you, yeah. watch, if you watch what's going on yeah. in the news. The ones that are frenemies are watched with a little bit more skepticism because you don't know yeah. yet what's going to happen. Look, it's fascinating um, to see how, how open-minded you are already because talking about telecom industries, our industry is so bad in collaboration. I can tell you we collaborate with the big hyperscalers, we collaborate with the internet companies, but collaborating with Vodafone, Telefonica or with Orange is so difficult because, you know, we, we are always in this kind of competition mode and it took us ages um, to really, let's say, get this mindset of frenemies. And still it's difficult. Um, if you co if look the rich communication services, if you see payment service, wallet service, nothing was able, which we created as an industry. And it, it's for me very encouraging that you are much more open already in this partnership models. I think this car cluster, um, as we call it in Germany, is working better together than maybe um, telecommunications. I'm totally convinced without, without cooperation and without a few platforms which are going to evolve globally, um, where you are part of, I think a lot of car manufacturers will not survive. Yeah, it's also, uh, it comes, sometimes it just boils down to the topic of economical constraint. Uh, in the past, it was enough for us if the next, next S-Class was just better than the one before. Mm -hmm. And then we usually sold more tick. That's not going to work anymore because we have to change the complete industrial footprint of our in. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a massive, massive upheaval that we're going through. And because of the inertia of the business, this is an upheaval that will go on for a lot of years. It's not, it's not Nokia and iPhone in, in two or three years, everything is done. Yeah. Uh, to retool um, transportation for humanity is a bigger industrial task than that. And the economic constraints will force us into strategic corporations as well. But now yeah, yes, yeah. I think about this Baden-Württemberg engineer working for your company since 20 years or 25 years or even longer, saying we are the Daimler, we do not need these Googles of the world and this kind of software guys, we do it the way how we did it in the past. How, how do you bring these people from their logic of being 
we are Daimler, we'll do it our way, and we were always successful in differentiating to the others, into a society which is working with open software, with a worldwide community, which is really creating this kind of um, um, cooperation I don't, spirit. I don't mind self-confidence as long as it doesn't flip over to arrogance, because that's then the beginning of your demise. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Engineers that believe that they can do it is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you have an engineer that believes that he or she can do it, and they're also open-minded open -minded for change, then it's a great thing. And that's what we're preaching. It's part of our whole culture, leadership uh, uh, initiative to, to change the culture. We're, we're still good uh, at many things that we do, and many of those skills, most of them, will be needed for the future as well but there are new skills, and those we have to learn. So, and or work with others to bring them on board. So what's your program of taking your people globally on this journey? A lot of communication, uh, uh, experimenting with different organizational forms where you use agile teams. Um, Is that big already, percentage-wise? Not percentage-wise. Uh, and maybe it doesn't work in every area, uh, but more and more parts of the organization start using it, and with very few exceptions, the ones that do use it usually come back and have a very positive experience. Uh, but it is, of course, with a big company, I think you're over 200,000 people, we're about 300,000 people. Before you have turned that whole tanker around, that is a marathon and not a sprint. Give us a little bit more advice about what to, how to change mindset, how to change, let's say, that people, you know, changing their mind to change their behavior. What, what are, how are you doing this? Is this about new leadership teams bringing up new, 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 new top leaders? Is it about, let's say, education, skills, theft? Is it about uh, the governance which you mentioned? What, what is the program the, the you're driving? In a way, the most senior management carries most of the responsibilities. If this is your top leadership, yeah. leadership team, you probably carry the most responsibility because the people that work for you and with you, they will look at what you're doing. So one has to try to remind oneself, what am I doing myself? Am I just preaching or am I actually doing something? Correct. Uh, we so, call that shadow of the leader. Yeah, so, so much of it is, is, is a mind, mindset thing. Of course, we went through the process of defining our leadership principles and talking about what they would be, and we have done a lot of communication. We have changed some tools, we have changed some processes, and then gradually the culture changes. It's never a, never a black and white situation, at least not in my experience, where you just say, oh, we're going to change the culture, and then six months later you have another yeah. culture. It's more like you, you sit here in the now and you think back three or four years ago, how did we do things, and you then start noticing yeah, we have actually changed some things. And then stay at it. Keep on going, keep on going, reinvent. Even, if, even when the hype phase is over and you go into the more, I don't know, kilometer 15 to 35 of the marathon where it just seems very long, uh, how, do you keep, how do you sustain that? That's what we're talking about now in our leadership initiative to create energy uh, around it. You and your team, are you more a team who says, by the way, we know where we want to go, this is the way, and you now uh, follow me or get out of my way? Or is it more the way that you are in very intensive collaboration, discussion, which sometimes, you know, is eating up a lot of time and, you know, delays before you have aligned everybody? 
traditionally, we have had a discussion culture. Uh, and, and especially in this country, discussion is part of the decision-making. Correct. And forcing your opinion onto somebody, I have experienced, is difficult here. It is better if you're able to convince. So, part of the decision-making, there needs to be discussion. That discussion is more heated recently. Because the outcomes, as I said, you cannot just make a better S-class. It's not, it's, it, it, the, 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 outer, the possible outcomes are so, so much more volatile now. Having said that, we are making some clear and big bets. And you've got to stick with them. Mm -hmm. We're making a clear and big bet on electric mobility. And there's no discussion. We're gonna, and that discussion is over. Yeah. Yeah, so in my role... In the end, I have to take responsibility. We're going to change this, and we're making a big bet on electric mobility. Full stop. Can you guarantee that every market will move at the speed that we are now assuming in our plans? No, you can't. But sitting and just waiting is not going to be the answer. Mm -hmm. And we just talked about we are on the way to making a very big bet on separating hardware and software and stepping into uh, software development. Those are now things for me, the discussion is over. Now it's about execution. Can we do it better, faster, cheaper th than our competitors or new entrants? Yeah. That's the discussion. And if we do that, we will win. If we don't, we won't. So um, you as a leader, by the way, with all the credit from this organization coming from, let's say, the first level to up to the CEO drop, what was your what are your biggest learning about leadership? Maybe I should ask my, the people that work for me if they, if they dare to say I don't I, I don't know. Uh, uh, if I look at our leadership principles, and I don't know what yours are, but I'm, I'm sure we will find some overlapping ones. With um, uh, think about the customer, the customer centricity. Uh, all of those things, agility, driven to win, and so on. So you have some of those generic leadership principles that are right, that we're trying, that we also measure when we evaluate management and so on. Uh, if I think about myself, why am I even here? Why do I wake up in the morning? Yes, there's got to be an intrinsic motivation and a commitment. Uh, and that uh, sometimes I say it's not like your mother said when you were a kid and you were playing football or whatever, as long as you're having fun with your friends, everything's okay. No, it's not. We're here to win. Yeah. So, so yes, I enjoy playing the sport, but we're here to win. You, you have to have that intrinsic mm. motivation and commitment to really get it done. Uh, and that's, uh, that's what I'm also looking for uh, when, when we select uh, people, uh, but not in a self-centric way. It's not about your personal win. In your case, Magenta needs to win. Yeah. In our case, the star needs to win. Yeah. So are you working for the company or are you working for yourself? If you're working more for yourself than for the company, you need to rethink that in my point of view. That's a great statement. I love that. Yeah. By the way, what did, your, what did your parents want for your career? Uh, there was no, there was not a specific instruction, no. so I didn't, uh, I didn't have a clear expectation. My dad 
started out as a lawyer and then went into business. Uh, I started, I studied business and went into technology. So I guess it never comes the way you think it's going to, it's going to come. Uh, but you got to find at least a company and a product that you can identify with that, that, that is fun. And in my case, uh, it's cars. It's cars. <laughs> Which is a nice one because you know you have something to touch. For us, it's very often difficult for a lot of people, especially in marketing, because they do not have a physical product. We are selling something which is, which is in the air. Yeah? So uh, this is, uh, we had to learn how to, to emotionalize a connectivity. And that is different in your case, which I, I, can, I can share that with as a customer of you. By the way, um, if you were a fruit, What would you be? And don't say an apple because this is the answer Tim Cook would give me. Yeah. So, if I would pick a fruit, apple would probably be the fruit. If I, <laughs> if I can't take the apple, uh, I've heard that there is a star fruit uh, that would fit to Mercedes. <laughs> That's a good one. I, I don't know. I don't know if it tastes particularly good, but it looks great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. 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 It's interesting. Mm. I had the same discussion with um, uh, Sir Richard Branson. And I think he was, I, I, he had, I had this exotic fruit, you know, which was looking ugly, but inside it was very sweet, you know. So that was his, his analogy. So it's great. So if you would choose a famous person, died or alive, to meet and to talk with, Who would be the person to A famous with? person. Well, one person that was definitely above all others at, at the time was, I think, Leonardo da Vinci. That did everything. Was an artist, was a yeah. scientist, yes, yes. was a thinker, was yeah. a, I don't know, a, a game, painter, game changer. Yes. And what I would like to know from him is, what is Mona Lisa really thinking? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, Uh, maybe very he good. knows. Yeah. That's very nice. That's an impressive, impressive artist. Now, um, what has been the greatest thing you have ever done in your life? Ooh, uh, By the way, the question is difficult. I was thinking about that before. Uh, we, have, we are so privileged. Therefore, we have so many moments uh, of, in life which are outstanding. But... You know, is there one thing where you would say this always comes spontaneous to your mind? I mean, you have your, you have your business life and you have your private life. Uh, one, if I, if I look in my business life, uh, a moment of pure joy and happiness. I had an unusual little detour in my career and I worked for a few years in Formula One. Mm. And in the season 2007... Uh, it was the, for those of you that are motorsports fan, it was the season where Hamilton and Alonso battled each other. Yeah, Hamilton came in as a rookie. That battle was so hard uh, that they fell out, which sometimes happens between drivers. And we lost the championship to Kimi Räikkönen and Ferrari by one point in the last race. And you almost have a, a, a moment where you want to jump off the roof. Twelve months later, We have an almost replay of the situation. We're back in Interlagos in uh, Brazil. And uh, Philippe Massa 
and Lewis Hamilton are fighting for the championship. I was there on location and it starts raining and we're talking about should we bring Lewis in or not. The safe thing is to bring him in, the unsafe thing and the bet is to leave him out. We go safe, we bring him in. Some of the other teams don't. So in the lead he comes, he moves back. Mm. And suddenly Vettel who had not won anything was ahead of him and Glock and other people. Massa wins the race and is world champion. 20 seconds later, 25 seconds later, in the second to last corner, Lewis passes Glock and then wins the championship by one point. I was ready to cry. Yeah. It, is, it is luck and skill, and to be part of that one experience was a special moment. Wow. Very cool. No, I make it very easy, but so you should not give me the answer directly with regard to the Formula One, but what was your biggest failure uh, which you made um, and uh, where you didn't anticipate things in the right way? What have you learned out of it? I almost ask myself every day if I had only known then what I know now. <laughs> uh, I'm not a cry over spilled milk type of person. But it's evident that the car industry is in transformation. Yeah. So now it's one of those things, you're massively impatient, but you work with constraints and all sorts of things and external factors that you can't control. If anything, what I'm learning now, just thinking back at what decisions were we making as a board four years ago, should have moved faster. Yeah. So can't change that. So from now on, what can we do to now move faster? Always try to move faster. Waiting doesn't, it doesn't make it better. Forward. Now, is this your... Rec <laughs> we sometimes say, you know, ambiguity is a bad thing because, you know, if you have unclear decisions in the room, the, the, both teams stand still. Sometimes it's even better if you go into the wrong direction, but you walk and you do something <laughs> yeah. than just waiting and debating. Um, and that is, I think, what we can learn. Even if you, if you fail fast, if you understand at one point and you moved uh, into the wrong direction, it's better than to, uh, to never stop discussions here. Before we come to my, my, um, 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 a short game, um, when you thought coming here to to Deutsche Telekom. Um, and by the way, um, let me say first thank you um, for being um, your customer. Um, we are very, very proud of um, having Daimler as, as one of our biggest uh, global partners um, and customers. And uh, I can tell you a lot of people in these rooms are committed to deliver service for you guys um, uh, every minute uh, of their life that you stay with us. So thank you for Daimler's. Well, thank you. Thank you. And Adele, we talked about yesterday. Anyhow, um, no, but um, that said, is there any recommendation which you give this kind of um, telecom management team here uh, today? Anything you thought of by, by coming here? Uh, you are a very big partner of ours, w one of our biggest partners, I think, in, in the domain yeah, that you yeah. deliver. Yes. Uh, of course, you have competitors. 
that we, we work with as well. Um, my advice would be stay on your toes. Uh, don't take anything for granted. Uh, I know we have uh, always constantly new business contracts coming up. We're generally happy with the service that we are uh, getting from telecom. And, and as we know, part of us, part of what used to be us is you. Yeah. So, so we, <laughs> we have a, a joint... Let's say this uh, me app, for instance, yeah, we have which a joint, we're using. We have a joint uh, uh, back or account kind of branches from the same tree in, in a way. Uh, as is the case for us that we really have to take new entrants and others seriously, take those seriously. Be a little bit paranoid. Uh, and, and uh, fight to stay ahead. Yeah. And as long as you stay ahead, you have a, a very clear and good and solid customer in Daimler. Thank you very much for this advice. And uh, <laughs> now, be, before we finalize this session here, um, it's a game, and you, um, you please complete the following sentence very spontaneously. <laughs> And I'll take it short. I take my personal energy from my wife. I thought the same. <laughs> it's interesting, yeah. huh? Yeah. yeah. Okay. My most important leadership principle is commitment. In ten years, Sweden will be still a very beautiful country. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite US president of all times is Abraham Lincoln. He, he, yeah, he, had, uh, he had a very difficult situation to negotiate, and I think he was one of the masters of history solving those problems. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. My so um, let's thank Ola for being here today, uh, giving us an um, inspirational look into his challenge business. I think you have a tough role. It's reinventing the business model of car manufacturers and you are at the, at the edge of it. Wherever Deutsche Telekom can support you, we are committed to do so. We wish you all the best and good luck for um, this big journey and thank you for being here today. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this special episode of Headlights with Telekom CEO Tim Hötges and the CEO of Daimler, Ola Kilenius. If yes, subscribe and leave us a like or a comment. Hope you guys join us in our next episode in two weeks as well. And by the way, Telekom has a CEO podcast and dedicates a separate episode to this conversation. Under the motto, meet the CXO, the company regularly opens the doors to its boardrooms and gives listeners an insight into what makes top management tick. Board members invite exciting discussion partners from business, society or politics to exchange views on current issues and industry trends. Just listen in.